Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We are a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. We hope that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. I want to speak to you this morning about a subject that will hopefully break us out of cultural norms. You know, we have, as a society, we have culture. What is culture? It's the accepted way of doing things. That becomes the culture of the people. The way we think leads to the way we behave, and these things inform us. When we become part of a group of people, we automatically begin to inculcate parts of their culture, sometimes without even realizing it. Sometimes without thinking. Greek words come out of my mouth because I hang around with my wife. And the irony is she never speaks Greek, so I can't understand this myself, but it's clearly some impartation that happens. But as we become part of a group of people of a society, we begin to take on parts of their culture. It's natural. You and I have come into a culture within the church Amen? And there are many wonderful things about church culture. The first thing is that it's diverse. Every church you go to is different. Every group or fellowship of believers is slightly different. Because the way God set it up is that we are all families. And even though my sister and I were raised in exactly the same home, the culture in her house with her husband and her children is a little bit different to the culture in mine. It's different. Not better not worse, but a little bit different. And in so doing, also, different churches have different cultures and different ways of doing things. But you know what else happens with culture? Sometimes things come in that that are not right, but they perpetuate themselves. Ways of thinking, ways of doing things. Sometimes things start off and become a culture, not because they are sin or bad, but because of a way that has prevailed in our way of thinking and in our way of doing things. And in so doing, we act and behave in a certain way. Michael, you are being very vague here. What are you talking about? I want to speak today specifically about the subject of the priesthood of all believers. And what I am confronting this morning as I bring you this message is a cultural norm that is within the church. It is within denominational church. It is within charismatic and Pentecostal church. Even though charismatic and Pentecostal churches will say that they have moved out of that, the way in which we practice church to attract people uh, and the way we minister to them and the way that we set things up, even though we try to use different words, we still perpetuate a very similar culture. And that is this that there are two groups of people within a church. There is the clergy, and there is the laity. Big fancy words. Let me explain to you what they are. The clergy is those people who are are ordained to perform religious duties. They are the priests. They are the ones who, who must do certain religious things, and only they can do those special, specific things. And then you have the laity, which is just ordinary, normal people 
distinct from the special ones, those gifted ones, those anointed ones. And so we have, even prevailing across all arms and sectors of this church, this idea that there are some that are called to do the work of ministry, and the rest are called to be ministered to. There are those within the church that are called to minister, and those in the church that are called to be ministered to. But the big problem with this way of thinking is this, that the church is the only organization in the world that exists entirely for the sake of its non-members. Did you get that? We come and we're a part of this church. We become part of the body of Christ and of the kingdom of God. And when we begin to inculcate the heart of Jesus Christ, we realize that we are not just here to have our club where some minister to the rest within the club. The idea is that there is a, a family, but that it exists not in and of itself to minister and edify only itself, but it exists for the sake of strengthening, equipping each other to reach out into the world. Our object is not just each other. Our object is others. And as you can see, there's significant resistance to this message this morning. Maybe we should just sit and watch all the sparkly things go by. <laughs> Let's spend a little bit of time understanding the priesthood. Because when we, when we continue in this cultural way of thinking, we need to understand that what we are doing is we are hearkening back to an Old Testament way of thinking and an Old Testament way of doing things. And so I want to go there. I want to understand that because what Jesus does and what the apostles do is they take what was represented there as a type and they bring it into the new covenant, but it has a very different expression and application. So in the old covenant, there was a temple. Remember, the nation of Israel came out of Egypt and eventually, in the beginning, this there was the tabernacle, which was a tent. And because they were nomadic people, the tabernacle with, went with them wherever they went. And what was the purpose of the tabernacle? What was special about it? That's right. The temple was different from any other place on earth because God's presence was uniquely there. And as they eventually took over the nation of Israel... They established and Solomon built a temple in Jerusalem. Amen? And there the, temp there the presence of God was with the Holy of Holies. The and the temple was made up of three sections. There was the outer court, the inner court or the holy place, and then the most holy place or the holy of holies, the three sections. And in the outer court, people would come and that is where sacrifices were made. The sacrifices of animals, the offerings were received, sin offerings, peace offerings, thanksgiving offerings, all coming in the forms of rams and lambs and goats and doves and various kinds of offerings that were made. The blood was sprinkled and then that blood was taken into the holy place or into uh, the inner court. And there was the table of showbread, the lampstand, the incense uh, which represented the presence of God and worship of the people. And this is the place where the priest would worship and where sacrifices or the blood of those sacrifices were presented and atonement was made for people's sin. And then 
there was the most holy place, the holy of holies, where the high priest, only the high priest, and only once a year, would go and make atonement inside the holy of holies, in the very presence of God, where the ark of the covenant was, and the two cherubs were on top of that, and between them that was called the mercy seat. And in that spot, mercy, God himself would come and sit and have mercy on the people, not judge them for their sin, but offer them forgiveness through the sacrifices and the atonements that had been made. And so you had a system where God wanted to, and God still does want to presence himself among his people. That was the whole, what the whole elaborate system was about, so that through the process of sacrifices and offerings, atonement could be made for sin so that God could be present with his people. And in the setup, there were those who were specifically separated to intercede or stand between God and the people. When you, you know, we have intercessors, professional intercessors in our midst this morning. Carmen and Fiona, they are both litigators, they are lawyers. And they intercede on behalf of their clients before a judge. That's what an intercessor does. It represents somebody else. And they represent somebody else with expertise, with knowledge, with wisdom, with insight, with qualification and authority. And so the priests spoke to God on behalf of the people, and they spoke to the people on behalf of God. They stood in between the two. And this is where the whole idea of priesthood and laity is birthed. And it was established and ordained by God, and it was good for a time and a season and a dispensation that it was in. And however, much of our church culture today still draws from this system of thought. And the problem with that is this. When Jesus died on the cross, something significant happened that changed everything. Not just the fact that your sins and my sins were forgiven or that atonement was made through the shedding of his blood. But we know that at that moment the ground shook, there was an earthquake, we sang about it this morning. The sky went dark, and in the most holy place, the veil. Now, we need to understand this veil. We may, it, it, veils makes it sound like a very thin thing that you can see through. When I arrived on my... When I stood in this spot... How many years ago now? 16 years ago now? My wife walked down that aisle. She wasn't hidden, though she was veiled. <laughs> they didn't lift something and went, Ooh! You can see through a veil based on our understanding. We need to understand that this veil was almost a foot thick. It was a serious, serious veil. And the Bible says when Jesus gave up his spirit, the veil was torn, ripped from top to bottom. Not from bottom to top so that a man could have done it, but from top to bottom. And in essence, what God was doing in that moment was he was saying from this moment on, I will no longer be confined to a brick-and-mortar building, to a single place where one day a year I will manifest my presence and my mercy to you. In that moment, through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, 
you could say the Holy Spirit was released and was set free. And God would not be restrained to a brick and mortar building. And he basically said, I am building a new temple. Say new temple. This is what we're talking about this morning. A new temple and raising up new priests. There's a whole, though we understand the the symbolism of those places, the intention of God in them, it's all taking on a whole new look. In his epistle, in his first epistle, the apostle Peter, the epistle, you know what they are? They're just the wives of the apostles. In his first epistle, I'm kidding, they're the letters written by the apostles. Are you with me this morning? Peter draws on the old temple set up. He draws analogies from that. He draws from the imagery and the meaning in everything I've just described to you. And he begins to articulate a new way of thinking by comparing this new system to the old one. And this is what he says. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read from verses 4 to verse 9. As you come to him, this is as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Let's just pause here. Why is he using stone analogy? Let's remember temple. Temple is built of many stones. Amen? We have a beautiful face brick building. You can see here, it is made up of many face bricks, not just one. If one were missing, you'd notice, wouldn't you? So this new temple, he's saying, is made up of living stones, and he's talking about Jesus, first and foremost, that this living stone, was the one which was rejected. He was sent to be the Messiah, first and foremost to the Jewish nation, the nation who worshipped God in the, in the temple. You yourselves, however, also, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Whoa! This is a big deal here. So he is saying many, many things in this one sentence. He is first of all saying that we are all living stones being built into a glorious temple. Most of us would say, because Paul also writes, he says, you are the temple of God, amen? And we generally read that to mean, I, me, singular, am the the temple of God in which his presence resides. And is that true? Yes, partly it is true. But we must never divorce that from the bigger picture. I am a temple of God housing the presence of God, but you know what? So are you. And together, we are all the stones which make up this new holy habitation. This new temple. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. He's speaking about Jesus. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. When you build, there's a few things that you will have in place if you visit any building site. If they're building up, you're going to have a plumb line, which shows you what directly upright is. You're going to have people who have come and demarcated where all of the foundations are going to be. And when you start building, you do not start building in the middle of a wall. You start building in a corner. And from the corner, you will go out in the different directions. Because what will happen is if you start building in the middle of this wall, 
You've got bricks that sit side by side, and they need to feed into each other in the corner. So if you build towards the corner like this from both sides, you don't marry up evenly. You make a lot more work for yourself. Everything is set from the chief cornerstone. The orientation of the chief cornerstone sets the orientation for the whole thing. That's the significance of the analogy. Jesus set the orientation for the whole thing. Jesus set the standard. Jesus set the design. And he brings us and builds us all into this glorious new temple built into him. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, he says. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. When you think of the priest, Jesus is saying, I am bringing you into this dispensation where you become an intercessor, where you begin to represent God to the world around you, and you begin to lift the world around you up to God. You make sacrifices. Sacrifices of praise and of worship, sacrifices of offerings, sacrifices of who you are for this purpose. You become a minister. You become a carrier of the presence of God so that He can send you out into the world as His priest, as somebody carrying His presence, authorized to minister on His behalf. And who did he give this to? Specific, elite individuals? Or is it to every single member of the body of Christ? Every single member of the body of Christ. Peter is using temple language here. Let me just recap and summarize. What he says is remarkable. You are now the temple of God, the place where his presence abides. You have become the house of worship, not just individually, but corporately. And this is something very precious and something very important. There are many out there today. I actually had a conversation with somebody this very week. I love Jesus because I'm inviting him to church. I love Jesus, you know, but, you know, I work, and, you know, I, I, I pray to Jesus every day. I serve God every day. He's got very questionable things going on. And uh, he is of this impression that he can praise Jesus and worship Jesus while being completely disconnected from the body. It defies Scripture. Because what Jesus has built us into, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're all baptized into one body by the same Spirit. There's this togetherness that God calls us to work out because you do not have everything that you need for your growth and spiritual development. And I want to say to you, you are not defective. Jesus built you that way. He has established this whole thing and set it up that I need you and you need me. You don't have what it all, have it, have it all. Your perceptions, your way of viewing God have left you with blind spots. And you need other people who have different blind spots, but who can see clearly where you can't. And they will add to your life through their gifting, and you will add to their life. And together, this building becomes a beautiful temple where the presence of God abides and works.
Through our faith in Jesus, we are not just those who serve in God's presence. We are those who serve from it. Did you get that? Isn't that beautiful? We do not just come into a place where God's presence is and, you know, we come into it and we serve Him and we worship Him there. We are those who are filled with His presence, filled with His Spirit, and therefore empowered to live and to serve from it. And this means that each one of us have an active role to play in bringing God's kingdom to bear in the earth. As long as I believe that that job belongs to the people who are paid to do it, to somebody who carries a fancy title like an apostle or a bishop or a pastor or a priest or something, that's their job. I'm just here to be ministered to. We miss the entire picture. We miss the whole point. We are those who are called to play an active role because this kingdom has come to bear in our own hearts and lives. We've been marked by it, we've been changed by it, and we've been commissioned through it. Through our submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we have not only been authorized and sent out by Him to represent Him, but also empowered by His Holy Spirit to bring His power to bear in this world. Jesus has touched and changed your life. I know that because we have testimonies. I've journeyed a long time with many of you. He has touched and changed my life, not just so that I can have a better life, but He has touched and changed your life so that the power that is at work within you can be brought through you to those around you. And this applies to every single believer in whose in whom the presence of God abides. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7 says this, We have this light shining in our hearts, this glorious presence of God, the person of Jesus Christ, but we ourselves are like fragile jars of clay containing this great treasure. And it makes it clear that our great power is from God and not from ourselves. Folks, we all feel like clay jars sometimes. We all feel pretty unremarkable, fragile, commonplace. The clay jar is not the stuff you pull out when fancied guests and dignitaries arrive. It's the kind of thing just everyday, normal vessels. I know you feel like that, because I feel like that too. Who am I? What can I do? What is special about me? In and of myself, the truth is really nothing. I'm nothing remarkable. But yet within this very normal, very unimpressive, very mundane, very run-of-the-mill clay vessel, God has decided to put something infinitely precious, infinitely remarkable, infinitely powerful. He has put His own Spirit, and He has deposited within you incredible gifts that nobody else can do like you do them. Nobody. Many people can play the guitar. Millions and billions of people can play the guitar. Nobody can play the guitar like me. There's a bunch of people who play the guitar way better than me. It's not about the better or the worse. It's about authenticity. 
Anybody can love your child, but nobody can love your child like you do. Anybody can serve in your workplace, but nobody can serve like you. And this is the incredible thing, that although on the outside we seem so unremarkable, there is an inherent preciousness of who you are and who God has made you to be in Christ Jesus. And I want to say to you this morning, Scripture has a lot to say about this. We're going to spend some time reading some portions now because we need to realize and understand that inside every single one of us there is something incredibly precious that the people around you need. I want you to turn to the person next to you. I want you to look them in the eyes. Find somebody to look at. You can look at Craig, bye-bye. You can look at Craig. You can look at, he, he needs someone to look at too. And I want you to say to them, I am God's gift to you. Now, whoever said that, you get to say it back. I am God's gift to you. Boy, don't we sound arrogant and conceited. This is not some kind of thing where we walk around and we think that we really are God's gift to this earth. But you know what the truth is? You are God's gift to this earth. Because God made you unique. Ephesians 2 verse 10. You are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you may walk in them. God has deposited something in you. And it doesn't matter how unremarkable you feel, how unqualified you feel, how unworthy you feel, it is not about you. It is about Him and what He has deposited in you and what He wants to accomplish through you as you manifest the life of Jesus and the power of the Spirit in the sphere that God has placed you. Jesus said it this way, I have called you to be salt and light. Let me read it to you. Jesus opens up the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon, with some of these words. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its flavor, how can it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Your pastor is not the salt of the earth, you are. Well, hopefully he is too. You are the light of the world. People around you should leave your presence singing. You light up my life. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Ah, in other words, I wanted to be hidden under the basket for a while because I didn't feel like I could shine and I didn't want anybody to see me trying. Anybody feel that way? I didn't want to try and shine because I was scared I'd get it wrong. I didn't want to be authentically myself because I was worried I'm going to be judged for it. I wanted to remain obscure, unseen, no attention on me. But rather Jesus says, no. You take a light, you put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. I need your light. We need you to shine. Shine. Jesus says, 
Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Folks, when you begin to shine, that's when you begin to bring glory to God. When you begin to live out that which God has placed in you, when you begin to use that incredible gift that God has given you, people get blessed and God gets glorified. That's a really good example for me. In my, in my life, in my situation, playing music is a gift. I love using it to help people worship God and to bless them as well as to worship God. I am always very uncomfortable when I'm asked to play something for people because I'm not an entertainer. I, don't, I know it's hard to believe. I actually don't really enjoy attracting all that much attention to myself. You'd never say so. <laughs> Marvelous revelations taking place this morning. But I cannot tell you the deep satisfaction I get from feeling that in some small way I have helped people connect with God and engage with Him. Because that's how God made me. Let's be clear. We all know that God has not created all people to sing. And we are very grateful when they know that. But there is, we don't want them to manifest what, what they are not. But when they manifest what they are, something beautiful is released into the atmosphere that gives glory to God and in, in, enables everybody to engage with it and to be blessed by it and through it. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 27. Long portion of Scripture, but Paul is articulating this message. Now, we've used kingdom analogies up to now. We're going to use a slightly different analogy now because it works better to help us understand how we ought to think these things through in the setting, excuse me, in the dispensation we are in. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up the whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. So now instead of this temple made up of living stones, we're talking about a body made up of different parts. Symbolism. Trying to communicate the same thing. Some of us are Jews, some are Gentiles, some are slaves, some are free. But we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit and we all share the same spirit. We are all connected to the same chief cornerstone. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I am not part of the body, I am not a hand, that does not mean it's any less part of the body. And in the ears, I'm not part of the body because I am not the eye. Would you make any less of that part of the body? Or would that make it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? Or if the whole body was an ear, how would you smell anything? So in other words, we're not all called to be the same thing and do the same thing. I've been really blessed by a song that's doing the rounds on social media right now. Have you, have you seen that song? There's a little boy. It's worth going to check it out. There's a part for every bit to play. It says, but our bodies have many parts, verse 18, and God has put each part just where He wants it. Did you get that? God is not random. He is deliberate. 
If God has a plan for your life, He's not waiting to see what's going to happen. He knows. And so He places and positions you deliberately among people who need what you have got and who have got what you need. Sometimes that is for a season. You know, as a spiritual family, we've always said, some people are called to us. Other people are called through us. So that for a time and a season, they can be healed and restored and move on to the plan of God for their lives. They're not ordained to be part of this family forever. But there are those, praise God, who are set, who are established. You couldn't get rid of them if you tried. So our bodies have many parts. God has put you just where He wants you. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. And the eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. We cannot do that. Doesn't matter how offended I get. Doesn't matter how upset I get. I can't dismiss you or myself from you. Because I defy the very temple. It would be like taking out a brick. There's something wrong, there's something missing. In fact, some parts of the body that seem weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require the special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts which have less dignity. In other words, everything, the seen and the unseen, is important to God. That which happens in the forefront and the limelight and that which happens behind the scenes. This makes for harmony among the members. In other words, mutual appreciation. Mutual appreciation. I so appreciate the people who come early on a Sunday morning and stay late to lock up. You know why? Because I don't have to. I so appreciate the people who make tea and who serve us and clean the kitchen because I don't have to. I appreciate the people who put the words on the screen and welcome you when you come in. The people who pay the bills so that we can have lights in this place. Everybody has a role to play and each and every one is important. I bet you most of you spend very little time thinking of Christella pushing that button to pay the rates and the taxes every month. It doesn't even enter your mind. But it happens faithfully Every part has its place. Everything. And all together we are Christ's body and each of you is part of it. In essence, every part is important. Every part has a role to play, whether prominent or inconspicuous. Amen? You got the principle. Let's go to another portion of Scripture where Paul, again, this time writing to the church in Rome, is saying the same thing. Romans 12, verse 4 to 8. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function... So it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. Amen? In God's grace, He has given each of us gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, sit on it and just do it in your quiet time so that nobody else sees and if your gift is serving others, get on with it if you have to. 
And if you're a teacher, you know, I mean, this is ridiculous what I'm, what I'm trying to say to you here. It's the idea that we have this gift and we, we don't want to use it. That we want to sit on it. We have an ability. We have a grace to do something. But somehow, for whatever reason, whether it be our own insecurities, whether it be our own fears or pain or fear of pain, we withhold. And this wonderful gift lies unused and unrealized. What it actually says, if God has given you a gift to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. Don't shut up. Don't keep it to yourself. Because God has called you to be a minister through the grace and the gift He has given you to minister. Do you get that? And not everybody has that grace. And even those who do have the grace cannot do it how you do it. Some people will receive easily and freely through my ministry. Other people won't. Because they are different and they receive things in different ways. They will receive better from somebody else. That's how God made it. It is good and it is right. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. Do it with excellence. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, please be encouraging. Speak courage and faith into other people. Why? Because people are facing trials and struggles on the daily. People are fighting battles that you and I know nothing about. And if you can be the one who can say a word that puts them over in that situation, that gives them the faith that they need, that reminds them of the presence of God to take strength and courage in that moment, you have done a divine work. If your gift is giving, give generously. And if God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do so gladly. And we see the same thing here. Specific graces and giftings for specific functions within the body. Every part is important. Every part has a role to play, whether conspicuous or inconspicuous. And what is the purpose of these gifts? Final scripture for the morning. We're going to go to Ephesians chapter 4. You all still with me? I'm having too much fun. This is taking me longer than I should. Let's move on. Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 11. He himself, this is speaking of Jesus, the chief cornerstone and the head of the body, has given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. But now, Michael, hang on a second. You've just said you're trying to break down this idea of laity and clergy. You see, here's the thing that we're breaking down, the idea that some people are called just to minister to you. That's what we need to get rid of. We need to break down that way of thinking. That way of thinking that says, I'm a consumer. I come to church, and you are my service provider. And you provide me a service every Sunday. We're going to the church service. This is what Jesus said. I have given you these people as gifts for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry and for the edifying of the body of Christ. It is not so that some people can minister to you. It is that some people are equipped to teach you how to minister, to help you, 
to affirm you, to recognize the graces and the gifts that God has given you, to give you room and a platform to begin to express them and to make mistakes and to do things in your unique clayey way by the grace of God. There's a major, major distinction here. The Old Testament says, that we've been through that, I don't want to go through that again. Ministry, by the way, is simply works of service. It is you using the gift that God has given you for the benefit of others. I can't make it more simple than that. It is not coming to receive, but it is coming to give. It is coming to manifest this gift. It is coming to contribute. When you come into a Sunday service, you are a contributor. Can you imagine what it would be like if I stood up there singing and nobody sang along? It would be awful. Can you imagine what it's like when I'm trying to lead worship and there's people sitting like this? People are lifting up their hands. They're weird. Not engaging. Not contributing. The beauty of our times of worship together is that people are all contributing. That's why there's something called the corporate anointing. And the, God, the presence of God manifests itself in a very special and real way. So if you are coming to this place week after week simply to be ministered to, if that's your way of thinking, I want to say to you, something is wrong with your way of thinking. You've adopted a culture that needs to shift and that needs to change. You are here to learn how to be a minister in the kingdom of God wherever He has placed you. The verse goes on to say, So we all come to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or whole or mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children. Children need to be sustained. Now in a family, there are those who need to receive ministry and need to be sustained for a period. But there is nobody who should be sustained in that way, fed all the time, nappies changed, continuously. We're to grow up so that we can become a contributing member to the household. My children are growing up, and as they're doing so, their chores are getting more and more sophisticated. Because I'm teaching them how to live life. I'm equipping them through slavery, um, uh, through service. <laughs> I'm teasing. Let's carry on. So we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is Christ, or the head Christ, and from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what? By what? It's right there. By what? Every joint supplies. Not by what the pastor supplies, the financial board, the leadership team, the ushers, the prayer group, every joint, every part. And that is what causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. When we have a model that grows the church around one gift, we've got a problem. We've now put a man or a ministry on a pedestal, and let me promise you he'll come tumbling down. The church was never built to be that way. The church is meant to be built of the wonderful expression of the gifts by what every part supplies. 
and every part knows that they are there to make a contribution, not just to be a consumer. Amen? Are you getting this? Is this making you uncomfortable? Some of you, yes. Some of you, no. Some of you, not quite sure. They're still trying to figure out what kind of clay jar you are. Am I a teacup or a pot? Let me finish this portion of Scripture. This will continue until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will... Have I just read all of that? I have indeed. Forgive me. All right. The essence of what I'm trying to communicate here this morning is very clear. Every joint has a role to play, and we need you. We need you. We need your scent. We need your gift. Don't be shy. It is the job of leadership to create room for your gifts. Amen? We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.